Good morning, everybody. My name is Dan. I'm the pastor of adult ministries here at Old North, and I have the privilege of opening up a very familiar text with you today in the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 6. We'll be looking at the flood, the story of the flood. And before we begin looking at it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I thank you so much for this day to be with your people gathered in praise to you, to hear voices raised up, acknowledging that you are the source of all life, that you are the one who has sustained us, you have created us with your intent. You desire us to live our days to the end that we glorify your name. And Lord, even as we fall short of that great task and we engage in behaviors that are evil and sinful and shameful to your name, you and your great mercy have come and have sacrificed your son on our behalf that we might indeed have newness of life. So Lord, it's in that reality that we approach this text today, that we approach as a sinful people in need of a savior on our behalf. And Lord, we praise you that you have given that. And we pray these things in the name of our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Of all the stories in the Bible, there are a few that are more well-known than the flood. Nearly everyone at some point has heard the story of the worldwide flood that has occurred. And nearly all cultures and nearly all religions have some variation of the flood narrative that they have told and have passed down through the generations. This is an ancient story. In the Babylonian culture, they told this story. They had a flood myth that was the result of a quarrel among gods. And so the flood occurred because the gods were having a disagreement regarding what to do with the noisy humans on the earth. And so one day, the god Enlil proposed to destroy the humans because they were noisy. And so the god Enki, who did not agree with that, went and found a man whose name was Atrahasis, and positioned him to overhear the plan of destruction. So now, Atrahasis heard the plan and built an ark and put his family and animals on the ark as the lone survivors of the plan by the gods to destroy all humanity for being noisy. The gods, by the way, at the end of the story, are saddened by the death of humanity because they lost all their free labor. That's the Babylonian narrative. Now, very close to that is the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a close in time to the story of the Babylonian flood story. And in this story, the gods, led once again by Enlil, they agreed to rid the earth of humans because there were too many humans. And so the human, Utnapishtim, all right, that's a great name for a son, That human is warned by another god in a dream about this plan to destroy the humans for being too many in number. And Utnapishtim, there he is again, he built a large boat and he filled it with his family and everyone who helped build it with him and he filled it with the animals and they survive the flood. And he sends out birds that tell him when it's safe to leave the ark. And then he makes a sacrifice at the end of all this that the gods said, this is great. Thank you for that. And the gods then in turn granted him and his wife immortality. They lived forever as a result. The rest of the humans were not so 
blessed. For they were given disease and barrenness because the major concern by the gods was that humans were overpopulating. So just two illustrations. I haven't read all the stories of the floods. I read a few of them outside of the scriptural uh, story of the flood. But, and while I haven't read all of them, you can kind of gain a theme through the ones that I have read. It seems to be that the flood narrative in many of these cultures and many of these religions is the God's judgment upon humanity. And the hero, the protagonist of the flood stories, is always the man who finds a way to survive in spite of the gods attempting to destroy him. Christianity's flood narrative is a little bit different. In fact, it's strikingly different. For as we will see in the Christian narrative about the flood, God grieves over what must occur because of the wickedness of humanity. It grieves God's heart. And so it is God who preserves humanity so that he might ultimately redeem humanity. And so let's read now just a segment of the flood narrative. We're not going to read all of it. It takes up four, three chapters in in Genesis and Um, We can't spend the time necessarily to do that, but we'll read segments of it to gain the flow of the passage. But we'll read for our time today, verses 5 through 22 of chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 22. And so the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created, and I will blot him out from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with a lower, second, and third deck. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive." Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Our structure for today is going to be this. We'll do three observations of the text that we just read and then three applications that come out of that 
observations that we have. So let's start with the observations that we're making about this text in particular. The first thing that we note here in this narrative that we've just read is that the world was evil. And the Lord saw this evil world. He was engaged with it. The world that he created, the world that he sustained, the world and the the men and women that made up this world, they have rejected God's way. They have rejected God's order. And it wasn't always this way. Why is the world only evil now when it was created good? And so I think it's important, even as we make these observations, to trace the spiraling effect of evil in this world. And it begins with the very beginning. As God created man and woman, he created them and he called all creation good. And when he created man and woman, he called it very good. And so mankind's primary experience with God at creation was to experience the goodness of God and the goodness of creation. And why was it good? Because it was good because they spent creation in the presence of God living in his reign. And so we can discern that the idea of good is to live in God's order and in his presence. It was good. And then in Genesis chapter 3, we see that things changed. There was a temptation at the tree which contained within it the knowledge of good and evil. And so in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, the temptation is actually framed to Eve that if you partake of this tree, then you will know good and you will know evil. You will know good, that is, you will know what it means to live in God's reign and God's way, and you will also know evil, what it means to live outside of God's reign and outside of God's way. And so the choice had to be made by Adam and Eve at that point. Will they continue in the good of living under God's reign, or will the knowledge of the evil living outside of God's reign become their choice? We know what occurred then. The choice was made, evil took the heart of man, and his tentacles began to entwine and define humanity. In the very next chapter, we see the outplay of evil in Cain and Abel. We see a brother killing a brother. And then at the end of chapter 4, we see a man rejoicing over the fact that he has murdered many. His name was Lamech. And Lamech also, by the way, had multiple wives. The very first time that polygamy is mentioned in the scriptures, outside of the order of God. And now, in Genesis chapter 5 and 6, the knowledge of man is no longer about good and evil. The knowledge of man in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, tells us that it is only evil. Have you thought much about evil? Have you thought much about your own evil? This week I asked myself a question, which is always a dangerous thing to do. Never quite sure what the answer is going to be. But I ask myself the question regarding evil, is all sin evil? Or are there gradations of sin that bring us into evil? I think many of us would never think of ourselves as evil. We would think of others with greater and more grievous sins as the evil ones. We would think of evil as applied to Hitler or to those that have done horrible things in this world. And there's some truth to that. But if we think of evil as living outside of God's reign and neglectful of his kingdom, then all of us are evil. John Piper says that the definition of evil is preferring anything more than God. 
And so we can say that, yes, all sin is evil and evil is all sin. And so the state of humanity in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, is that there is indeed evil present. And any time that evil is the focal point of our behaviors and our minds, there's implications to that. And we see it in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord lists them out what is occurring, what is offensive before him. There's a continuous desire for men and women to live apart from God. We see this in our own hearts. Sin begets sin. Evil is also a corrupting reality, causing the order that we are created in to be lost, to be confused, and ultimately the defining lines of right and wrong are ultimately crossed. And evil has a violent output. You notice through Genesis chapter 6 that one of the accusations that God makes regarding the evil state of humanity is that they are a violent people. And brothers and sisters, I think we could pause this morning and look around the world and we can say that we are indeed a violent people. Evil is violence. And that we have brother against brother taking advantage of one another. And so the world is characterized by evil. And we see here in the very beginning point in the wickedness of this world, we see that humanity has refused to be God's creation. Humanity has refused to surrender to God's purposes and intents. Evil has become the defining characteristic of all creation. And as evil has grabbed the heart and action of the world of humanity, the holy God must respond. And so the second observation we make here, the first is that the world is wicked and evil. The second is that God is just in the midst of this evil. Humanity has betrayed God. He, humanity has betrayed God's created intent and has walked in evil ways rather than walking with God. And as the holy God is a just God, evil must be addressed. Why must God address evil? Well, as a just quality within God, it must be acted upon. Justice that does not address injustice or evil is actually injustice itself. And so God's holiness in the face of the evil of humanity, in the face of corruption, in the face of violence, in the face of perpetual and unrepentant evil within humanity, God must actively engage and cleanse the world of this evil. His character demands it. And so as we see in Genesis 6, 6 through 7 here, you will see that there's two components to his engagement. We see his plan and we see his pain. What is the plan that God puts in place to address the evil that is in this world? Well, Genesis chapter 6, verse 7, I will blot out, I will erase, I will cease it from existing. It means to completely remove. 6 verse 13, I will destroy. No longer is God building creation, but he is undoing it. Verse six, chapter 6 verse 17, he will use a flood to do this. The chaos that God brought order out of in creation is now going to be used by God to actually undo creation. It is the holy God who must address this evil. You notice that he says, I will, I will. I will. It is not an accident. It is God's intentional plan to undo the evil influence upon this world. 
But in the midst of that, there is his pain. That's one thing that stood out to me in preparation for today is Genesis 6, 6. That this plan grieved him to his heart. The judgment and the wrath of God is poured out as he cries over the brokenness of mankind. I think many of us often think that the judgment of God upon evil is a simple act that God engages. Well, here we see there's complexity to it. We see that he's not exercising the judgment of a petulant or an angry God, but rather he's exercising the judgment of a grieving parent. That's the language that's meant to be felt there. And think about this. The holy God of the universe actually feels and engages the brokenness of creation. He is the God who sees our evil, sees evil, and grieves at the action evil demands from him. And so we see that the justice of the holy God requires that the evil of a wicked people must be judged, must be cleansed. Evil demands a response from the holy God. Observation number three. Even as this world is wicked and evil, and even as God must indeed engage the evil that's in this world, the third observation that we pull out of this text is that God protects and delivers his people. And he uses three measures of engagement. He uses a man, a boat, and time. Let's talk about the man. Noah. Who is this guy? Well, Noah, we read, found favor with God. He's the only man in the world of evil that actually puts himself in the proper position before God. He's the fully responsive man who accepts creatureliness and lets God be God. And Noah is a new being. Something new is at work in the person of Noah. In Noah, we see the contrast of the hopelessness of evil under the world of the judgment of God. We have a contrast here. For as the world rebelled against God's reign, we see three times in repeated fashion that Noah did all that God commanded him. 622, chapter 7, verse 5, chapter 7, verse 9. Noah did all that God commanded him. Noah's actions offer the needed contrast in this story. Deliverance then comes only through a man who obeys the reign and the rule of God. Through a man who hears the words of God not as a threat to humanity, but as the very source of life. Noah is a faithful man to the holy God in the midst of a faithless humanity. And so Noah goes into the ark not as a mere survivor, but as the bearer of God's promise for a new age. And as Noah enters the ark, entering with him is the continued covenant of God's ultimate victory over evil, the crushing of the serpent's head by the heel of the woman. And where does Noah go? He goes into a boat. Noah was no shipbuilder. We can assume that potentially he was a farmer. Because after the flood, what did he do? He planted vineyards. Potentially he was a farmer. We don't know for sure. But we know that he probably wasn't a shipbuilder of this magnitude at the very least. Just imagine the process. You know, imagine the, 
the, the, the faith that it took for Noah to do this. The scope of the boat, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. It could carry an estimated, the whole total displacement of this boat is an estimated 43,000 tons. How many of you have been down to the Ark Encounter down in uh, Kentucky, right? Yeah. You've seen a replica, replication of the size of that. And the materials that God tells Noah to use, these are no simple materials. These are strong wooden beams that this man, who, by the way, was 500 years old when he started working on it, this man had to build with no cranes, no mechanized vehicles, nothing of that sort. He had to build. And then God says, seal it with pitch inside and out, which is really interesting because the Hebrew word for pitch is the root word for atone. So cover the boat with atonement. Be sealed within it. And the act of God in closing Noah into that boat, into that ark, the powerful imagery of God sealing the family from the coming wrath. Only as God sealed Noah into that ark would they be safe from the wrath of God. And then time. How long was Noah in the ark with his wife and kids and in-laws and animals? One year. And for one year, he was provided for by God, sustained by God. And think about the experience of being in the boat in the midst of the rough waters. And we know the waters had to be rough for the sheer amount of water that came upon the earth at that particular time. We read that the floodwaters exceeded the highest mountain by 22 feet. And so the amount of water that had to come upon the earth to accomplish that in the short amount of time was 100 feet a day of water, five feet per hour. Imagine what occurred as the boat was tossed around and around and around. And then imagine the reality of being inside the ark if you're Noah. As the boat is being tossed and you're hearing all the sounds on the outside, there's only one window. And you're hearing the screams of the people that were outside. You're feeling the, the, the movement of the water. You're hearing the sound of the deluge. You're, you're feeling the wind upon the boat. And you're not certain at all what is on the other end of this. If there will be another end of this. And so at the end of that year, when the birds come back, when the dove comes back with an olive branch in her mouth, revealing that there is indeed a place to settle upon, and God in his miraculous ways dries out the land and Noah exits the boat, can you imagine that day? And breathes the fresh air of a new creation. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, we read what his very first act is. We read in 8, verse 20, that Noah then built an altar to the Lord and took some of the clean animals and offered a sacrifice as a burnt sacrifice. And the Lord smelled the aroma and said in his heart that he was pleased. And I will never again curse the ground. A grieved God becomes a pleased God by the sacrifice of a righteous man. And so a principle is put in place. 
And so we observe in these three things that the world was wicked, that there was a, indeed a judgment that had to come upon the world because of the wickedness. But in the midst of that judgment, there's grace. God saves and preserves his people. But I wonder what this actually means to us. One of the great dangers about reading a story like this, a story that is so familiar, is that we simply just think we know it. We don't consider it. We've seen the movies, we've read the stories, we've seen the flannel graph if you're old enough. And so we think we know all the moving pieces. And so I want to challenge us, even as we think about the application, let's consider this for our own hearts. The first point of application that I'd like for us to think about is this, is that humanity is still evil. As it was then, it is now. There is evil within us in this room today. We desire a life outside of God's reign. We practice that in our day-to-day decisions. It's evident in what our priorities are and what thoughts come into our mind, what our affections drive us to. And in the midst of the wicked world around us, the evil world around us, I hear people all the time say, well, why doesn't God just save everyone? Wouldn't that just make more sense? We've even had a few teachers who teach that God will save everyone. The proper question probably is, in light of the obvious wickedness and evilness in humanity, why does God save anyone? In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes that there's none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so in the midst of even that verse, if we were to simply read that verse, the question that we would have out of that is, if that is the state of my heart and the state of your heart and the state of our neighbor's heart and the state of our country's heart and the state of our world's heart, no one does righteous, then what is the only hope for humanity? And the only hope that we have in humanity is the only hope that Noah had. Back to Genesis 6, 8. What was Noah's hope? Noah's hope was that God found favor in him. And that word favor, in some of your translations, it actually says grace. That God found, or Noah found grace in God. And that God gave Noah grace. How is it that the sinful Noah, because we know he was sinful, uh, he too was rooted in the evil world of that time, he found favor It was God's grace poured into Noah that opened up salvation from God's certain and righteous judgment. Grace is the starting point for any conversation about hope. And that's the astounding relationship of God with humanity. We are evil and God must judge us, but he also desires to deliver us. And it's only through grace that that is possible. But his grace needs to be rooted in his power. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, if we come to this passage and think that we have anything to bring that would warrant salvation from God or warrant deliverance from God, Paul quickly puts us in the proper position. He says in Ephesians 2, 8, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is God's grace alone that can preserve us today. You and I, we are steeped in evil. 
And we have zero ability, zero righteousness on our own to escape the, the wrath that our evil demands. And so the necessary step for deliverance is surrendering to the grace that God makes available to you. Noah found grace. God gave Noah grace. You and I must have the grace of God to even hope for preservation from his wrath. Grace is a powerful concept. Our world marvels at it. It makes no sense to our world. But we try to think about it. The great theologian Bono. No? All right. Bono wrote a song about grace. And he called it grace. And he says in this song, Grace, that grace carries a pearl in perfect condition. What once was hurt, what once was friction, what left a mark no longer stings because grace makes beauty out of ugly things. At the very simplest level, this is what grace does. Grace offers the opportunity of healing. Some of you in this room today are saying to yourselves, I am evil. I've mucked everything up. I continually pursue the things that break me and break those around me. And you feel hopelessness kind of seeping in and you feel the perpetuity of evil within you and your actions. I want to say to you today that the grace of God is the necessary foundation for you and I to be delivered from his wrath and it is available. And so I wonder, have you surrendered to God's grace? Or are you still ceasing or striving on your own hopes and own power? Second application to consider is this. It's through faith in God that one is preserved from his judgment. The the wonderful thing about the Bible is that there's commentary about different things in the Bible in other sections. And in Hebrews chapter 11, which many consider to be a commentary of the Old Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, we read about Noah as an example of faith. In Hebrews 11, 7, we read, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. When God spoke to Noah, Noah believed God and acted upon what God had said. And see, faith actually is the act of living in the saving grace of God. When you surrender to the grace of God, there's a transition that occurs within you to where now you live your life out of the grace of God. And there's a detail in Hebrews 11 that I think we need to stand and and focus upon, and that is a phrase, concerning events yet unseen. Noah had no idea what a flood would look like. Noah had no idea what an ark should look like. There were a lot of unknowns between God and Noah. But Noah, having found grace with God, he lived in the sufficiency of God's grace and he opposed the wickedness of his own heart. And so Noah builds and he trusts And he trusts that what God says is the better way. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 through 39, Jesus talks about Noah. And Jesus says uh, that Noah's saving faith is contrasted with those who do not have faith. And so he says, for as 
In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware of the flood until it came and swept them all away. So it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Here Jesus is referring to yet another event unknown to humanity. Then that event is the coming judgment of the holy God. And so as God promised and fulfilled judgment upon evil in Genesis chapter 6, we know that he will fulfill the promise of ultimate judgment at the end of all things that we read about and know is coming. But for many of us, even in Matthew chapter 24, we see Christ say, for many of us, we live lives that are too busy to concern ourselves with these things. We are too busy to consider the reality of Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. This is the promise, by the way, that will come true. We read, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Another event that humanity has never experienced and doesn't really think is going to happen. And so we busy ourselves with giving in marriage and pleasures of drinking and eating. And we find ourselves too busy to consider the fact that God means what he says and will follow through on the promises that he has made. And even as we read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, all the dead that are lined up there to be judged, you and I are likely in that midst. And I wonder, are we standing at that point in the merits of our own activities or are we standing in the merits of Jesus Christ? And when we connect the Revelation passage with the Matthew passage, with the Genesis passage, we conclude that there are many, many people who simply ignore the coming judgment. And so, there is a faith required in the promises of God, in the grace of God, to be delivered by God. And I wonder if this day, is there anyone in this room who has faith? Is there anyone in this room who does not? Because the last thing we consider is this, that God ultimately delivers his people from his judgment by means of his son, Jesus Christ. And this is the point of the flood narrative. Many of us don't think that, but this is the point of the flood story. The flood of Noah and the ark, the point of it all is that we would come to a place of recognizing the necessity of deliverance from God's judgment. And we would recognize that we cannot deliver ourselves. It's only through God's act on our behalf that we are delivered. And we know throughout Scripture, the trajectory of Scripture tells us that it is through God's Son, Jesus Christ. The ark itself is not a simple fact of history. It is a literal ark that serves as a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that Noah was ultimately saved and delivered from God's wrath? He had to go into the ark. How is it that we are saved from the wrath of God to come? We are to be found, in the words of Scripture in the New Testament, we are to be found in Christ. Christ. 
In the New Testament, the word Christian is never really used to define someone who follows Christ. It's given upon those who do. But the way that Paul defines someone who follows Christ is he says that they are in Christ. And being in Christ means that we are preserved from the wrath that the evilness of humanity demands from God. And so what is the stupendous reality of being in Christ? Now here, I want you all to think about this. What is this stupendous reality of being in Christ? Because there are some of us that are not in Christ today. And there are others of us that are in Christ today. And those that are in Christ, this should be a point of celebration. And those that are not in Christ, this should be a point of consideration. Romans 8.1 tells us that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. Well, why? Why is there no condemnation? How can this be? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's no condemnation for us because Jesus took the condemnation. He took the evil upon himself, and he answered the the demands of judgment from God himself. And what that means then is 2 Corinthians 5.17, that anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. And just as Noah was delivered by being in the ark to a new creation, we, by being in Christ, are delivered as a new creation. And so now we can live this life with the confidence that we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 through 39. Paul writes, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we live this life In Christ, there is security and hope that is untouchable by the experiences of the day-to-day. We are anchored, secured, and held by Christ. And as such, we live in the love of God, not the judgment of God. And that means ultimately, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, that even when we were dead in our evil, in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. For it is by grace that you have been saved. And then he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And so we have been saved from God's judgment by being in Christ. We now live in the day-to-day power of Christ in us as a new redeemed creation in his power for his glory and ultimately with a secured destiny because he is the one that has secured it. How? In Christ. And so in the story of the flood, we see this. For those outside of Christ, the judgment of God is fatal. But in Christ, God's grace delivers you to new life. I wonder, and I pray, will you ignore these truths this day? Or will you surrender and become a new creation as the grace of God through Jesus Christ remakes you? 
Let's pray. And so, Father, I thank you for this time in your word. Lord, may you cause us to be a people who reflect upon these truths. We thank you for the salvation that is ours in Christ. And we thank you, Father, for the guarantee that is stamped upon us by your action. That you have sealed us, that you hold us, you sustain us. And so, Lord, may we be a people who live our lives ultimately for your glory all the days that you give us. And I do pray, Lord, if there are those in this room this morning who upon thinking upon these truths have realized that they are outside of Christ, I pray that this would be the day of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.